I think I just recently preached on a passage in Luke, a parable that was weird and uncomfortable. And then, lo and behold, this happened again. So Luke has been challenging these last couple of weeks, um, but in a good way, I think. Um, My struggle with this parable did not start, though, as I was preparing this topic. It, It started a long, long time ago when I was an infant in faith. In fact, I wouldn't have even considered myself a Christian at this time. And I found, I found my personal struggle with this parable uh, a parallel to the parable itself. So I hope that you'll endure with me as I go back and forth between the two. Um, but for now, for opening us up, I just want to say that uh, there, are some, there are some places in the Bible that we're tempted to either skip over because they give us trouble, or maybe completely opposite, we skip over those around them and just pull out that which appeals to us. And I remember one of my seminary professors used to pretend to hand us a pair of scissors, like he'd carry scissors with him for this purpose. I think when you're a seminary professor, you get bored. I don't know. But he used to carry scissors around hoping that one of us would whine about a passage so that he could like prepare his little joke and be like, oh, well, you can just cut that part out. Um, and it was, it was tongue-in-cheek, of course, because you can't cut passages out of the Bible, but there was some manner of seriousness in that, that that's what we kind of tend to do, in, at least in our, our culture, that we see a difficult passage and we're tempted to just pretend it doesn't exist. With this passage that we're about to read, I've seen two things tend to happen. I've seen that sometimes people will focus in on just a little bit of it, and and when that happens, it almost presents as somewhat of a prosperity gospel thing, that if you just bother God enough, God will give you what you what you want. And so it's it's preached a little nicer than that. But go to God in prayer and he will give you anything you ask for if you just pray about it hard enough. That is problem number one with this passage, so I want you to think about that. Um, or problem number two in this passage is who are we comparing God to? Are we comparing him to the unjust judge because Jesus himself says, oh, listen to what that unjust judge says. And you almost are tempted to think that God is the unjust judge who doesn't want anything to do with us and will grant us something just to make us stop bothering him. So there are those difficult things um, that remind me again of my infant Christian days. Without further ado, let's turn to the text. Um, We're reading from Luke 18, 1 through 8 today, and that's found on the Pew Bibles um, in 1038. And I I have to say, I, I didn't look at the Pew Bibles when I downloaded the NIV, and I think I accidentally wrote out the old NIV version. Uh, So I might have a very slightly different version than you. But let's look at Luke 
18, 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with this plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God, nor do I care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually just come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's let that sink in for a moment as we pray. Dear God, we ask that you would be with us here today as we learn about how to be persistent for you. God, teach us your words. Give us your message. Speak to us here today. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so has anyone here seen the new uh, live-action Aladdin movie with Will Smith as the genie? Yeah, I have. Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I really like Disney movies, actually. One of my roommates, uh, my roommate Susie, says that I won't watch a movie unless it has music in it, unless it's a sing-along, and uh, <laughs> she actually may not be wrong. Uh, but I really like Aladdin, and Aladdin is where our story starts today, believe it or not. I was, I don't know, I was in seventh grade the first time I saw Aladdin. Uh, I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it on VHS in my friend's house at a sleepover. And I really enjoyed it because I think, as, especially as a seventh grader, you want to dream. And you want to dream that things like genies exist and that if you had three wishes, they could come true and all you had to do was ask. And so in your minds right now, I want you to think if you had three wishes, what would they be? You don't have to tell anyone. Just take a moment. It's not too hard, I don't think, because I think all of us have a wish that we wish could be granted. And so as a seventh grader, I was enchanted by that movie because I thought, wouldn't it be great if a genie existed? And then I could get my three wishes. And so as Disney movies have this tendency to do, I was influenced as a child to really enjoy that. And maybe that sets some sort of setting for my mindset as a seventh grader, a baby in my faith, uh, hearing this passage for the first time. <clears throat> 
I was very new to church, and I just started going to church when I was in seventh grade. I didn't have anyone who could pour into me and tell me what scripture meant. I wasn't a praying person at that time, although I think I, think I sometimes thought about talking to God here and there. But it, it wasn't a, a developed reality in my life. And I was confused the first time I heard this passage. Um, I don't think that the last two verses were included. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. So from what I heard, it ended at, and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. I'm almost positive it ended there. There's a problem in how we interpret scripture. And sometimes we lean toward a bit of a prosperity gospel. And, and sometimes that's okay and sometimes that's less okay. Um, and I think this time was one of those less okay times. But at any rate, I was young and I was confused by the scripture and I was just beginning to develop my understanding of who God was. And for me, that was a big deal and it still is a big deal in my life, I, I still find myself coming to scripture, and one of the first questions I ask is, what does this say about the character of God? And I think I've done this subconsciously for, well, all of my faith journey, is constantly looking at scripture and saying, how does that change my understanding of God's character? And I see myself, as I look back, already having started that before I even consciously was aware that I was a Christian. So here at seventh grade, my understanding of God came from everything that Pastor Pete said, and it was the law to me. And so he would preach sermons on how deeply God loved us, and that's kind of all I took in. Because I wasn't analyzing his words, I wasn't reading scripture for myself, and so what I knew of God was that he was somebody who loved me deeply. And that in and of itself was hard for me to process as a person who thought that maybe I was unlovable. So when he preached this sermon and said that God is like the unjust judge, what my mind stuck to was that if we bring our queries, if we bring our wishes to God, maybe he won't grant them at first. But if we just keep going to him over and over and be persistent, eventually he'll cave in. And that's what I took away with me. And I felt so broken <laughs> after that service. I, I couldn't explain it then, but I felt so empty because my understanding of this God who loved me no matter what was really shattered because all of a sudden it wasn't a God who loved me no matter what. It was this God who didn't want to be bothered by me. And so if I just 
tipped that line of bothering him, I could manipulate him into being like that Aladdin-like genie. And so as much as I enjoyed the dream of maybe a genie coming someday, (laughs) I found that in reality, that's not what I wanted at all. In fact, it, it hurt deeply to think that that could be a reality. Now, I remember this because I think this is the first time I consciously prayed. And I prayed that it wasn't true. <laughs> Sorry. I prayed that it wasn't true. And then I worried because I was like, well, if I just pray that enough, <laughs> maybe that'll come true too. Um, but I, I remember saying, God, I just don't want that to be right. And what I take away with this and what I hope you'll take away with this at the end of this is that if we do persist in the things of God, we are going to go deeper. So maybe this passage won't be about persisting in bugging God for the things that we want. But if we persist in coming to God and asking to go deeper with him, That's where our hope lies. And so that's what happened, even if it was accidental in my faith journey. I came to God and said, God, please don't be some sort of superficial genie. Please just actually love me deeply enough to never push me away and just grant me wishes. And so that's what I want for all of us today. Because as I stand here now, 20 years later, I realized that that's exactly what happened. I prayed for that first time, and then I began praying more, gradually. And as I prayed more, God revealed his character more and more to me and helped me to to persist. So I persisted and I persevered, even through those very hard times in my faith. And I was able to go deeper with God. Now, there's a big problem with how that passage was presented. I very much love the church I grew up in, and I love Pastor Pete, um, but he had a little tendency to preach the, the easier um, prosperity gospel. Um, I, this is why, even though it was 20 years ago, I don't think that verses six, 7 and 8 were included in this because that, that seems out of character for him. And so, even though I don't remember exactly what he said, I have no trouble believing that he would have left those off and just preached, go to God with the things you want and eventually you'll get them. As a summary. This is actually kind of a common problem with this passage. So one of the problems we have in our culture today is to just take little pieces of scripture, and sometimes by doing that, we take them entirely out of context. So our lectionary includes verses 7 and 8, and some some scholars are going to find that a problem. Some are going to say, well, don't include 7 and 8 because we think that Luke added them later. 
let's look at 7 and 8. 7 and 8 tell us, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? So we switch to all of a sudden talking about justice. And it feels strange because Jesus opens this, this passage by saying, this is a parable about prayer and why you should never give up. So it does feel a little strange to go through that and then to say, well, actually, this is a passage about justice. And so some scholars are going to say, well, clearly, verses 7 and 8 weren't meant to be in the original scripture. That is something that Luke added to this passage later, because by the time Luke was writing, Christians were being heavily persecuted. Christians were going through a lot. They were being killed for their faith. It was not fun to be a Christian, and they were asking, they were even begging, when is the time when the kingdom will come? And they hadn't been given an answer. And so, by the, so it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that, well, maybe Luke added those two verses. In fact, it is still a completely split debate today, um, but... I am on the side, and a lot of people are more now, that these verses were originally spoken by Christ in this context. And we can get our proof from chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. So the, the scripture that immediately leads up to our, our text today talks about the coming of God and persisting and persevering in faith, even in the times of injustice, and even as we see hopelessness around us, persisting in our faith and waiting for God's judgment. And in that very same conversation, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and that very same conversation, as he's telling the Pharisees, judgment is going to come, and it's going to happen in the blink of an eye, and you need to be prepared because no one knows when it's going to come but it is going to come, and there will be justice after this. And in that same conversation, in that same breath, he immediately goes into this parable and says, by the way, let me tell you a parable about prayer. And then he ends it again with verses 7 and 8 by saying, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? So it, if you were to read it with 17, 20 through 37 being the opening to this parable as it really needs to be read, then it makes sense that 7 and 8 were written as part of what Jesus said and not as an add-on that Luke made later. That wasn't always how we interpreted this text, though. Again, like I said, some people will say, no, Luke added those on. So it kind of depends on, on how you interpret that. But I, I interpret it as Luke writing exactly what Jesus said. And that's going to change our interpretation. And I think that makes a big difference to how I first heard this parable. Because suddenly, we are left to wonder about a few things we're left to say, well, I thought this was about prayer, but suddenly it's about justice. And without those two verses, 
we think, well, we can just pray about anything, and if we bother God enough, he'll just give it to us. But with these two verses, we say, no, if God is a God of justice, like this verse says, and if he's here to stand up for the righteous, then it doesn't make sense that he'd want to push us away. That doesn't make sense at all. So we have to dig deeper, and that's the part that I really enjoy, um, is the digging deeper. I think as a, as a young person in faith, I didn't enjoy that at all, and I would have gladly taken my professor's scissors and been like, well, this whole page just goes. But now I think I grow in this challenge, and I hope you will as well. So we start off um, with understanding what's going on here in this passage. We have two characters, the widow and the judge. And the widow is who we really want to focus on first. The widow represents those who pray. Not just those who pray, but those who persist in coming to God. So she goes before the judge, and the judge represents God, or at least a broken worldly version of God. And the woman is suffering some kind of injustice. So in that time, a woman would marry very early. Probably a good age to get married at that time was 14 years old. So imagine that you could become a widow as early as 14 years old. And what does that mean? It doesn't just mean that you're husbandless. It means that as of 14 years old, your life is pretty much over unless society has compassion on you. Because a widow didn't have the kind of rights that a man would have. A woman was property, First, she was property of her birth family. She was given to the groom's family. And when she was given to the groom's family, there was a dowry paid for her. So essentially, she was bought like property. When a husband died, the property he had would be left to either his sons or his brothers or his birth family. And sometimes there were stipulations made for his widow, but even then, that was controlled by the overseer of the will, who was definitely going to be someone, a male from his family line. So even if the husband had left her land or finances, she didn't necessarily get them because they were under the control of other people who didn't necessarily have the same emotional tie to her. So what if you're a 14-year-old girl and your husband dies and you have no money, no land, you have some options. Either you can seek mercy from your husband's family or you can go back to your own family. But what happens then? Your husband's family sees you as property. And so it was often the way that a widow was made a slave, especially a widow who was young and who could still provide work. A widow who was older may be very well just cast aside. 
A widow who is young could go back to her family, but what happens then, they have to pay back the bride price. So they've become indebted in order to help their family. And oftentimes, in order to pay that debt, they sold the bride into slavery. Or, <laughs> if a woman was older, perhaps she didn't have family to go back to, and so again, she was left to her own devices. Either way, you get a woman who's destitute once her husband dies. Now, in Jewish culture, there were, there were ways to take care of that. God demanded justice for the widows for this reason, because they were a group that was deliberately and easily taken advantage of. So God demanded justice for them, and he said, if a bride's husband dies, there will be a kinsman redeemer who will marry her in her husband's place. So someone related to the husband should marry her. But that's a liability. That's extra expenses, and that's something that the, the husband's family probably didn't really want to take on. They would only do it if they were God-fearing people who wanted to do the right thing, even at expense to them. And let's be honest, there are some good people who do that, but most people, when they're not being forced to, aren't going to say, yes, I would like to take on a lifelong expense and support someone who doesn't have emotional ties to me otherwise. So women were often just neglected, even though Jewish law tried to support them. And then we enter the judge. Now, we don't know if the judge was Jewish or if the judge was Roman or what was going on there, but we know that he did not care what God thought, therefore he did not care if he helped the widow to seek justice. And he did not care what people thought, therefore he did not care if the widow ever sought justice. And he did not care if the widow told everybody, well, he's not following God's law because he didn't care what people thought. Jesus said it, and then he himself reiterated it. Jesus said there was a man who did not fear God or respect people. And then later in the parable, after he'd been bothered and bothered and bothered by the widow, one might think he was forced into a change of heart and that maybe he was like, ooh, people are going to start talking if I don't support this widow soon. Or, oh, maybe God really wants me to help her. No, he said, I still don't fear God and I still don't care about people, but she's really annoying, so I'm going to just seek justice on her behalf. Now the parable, the parallel in this parable is not to say that God and the judge are the same, but rather the situation itself is similar. A petitioner comes and seeks justice, and eventually justice is served. And even this worthless, crooked judge, who doesn't care about God or people, will eventually grant justice. But then we're supposed to note, and we're supposed to ask, how much more will the God who is loving and who 
prioritizes justice, how much more will he grant it? Now, there's nowhere specific in this passage that says this is a how much more parable, but it is actually classified as a how much more parable because we're creative in naming things. It is classified as a how much more parable, even though it doesn't say those exact words. But scripture does help us to understand scripture. So there are other passages that inform this one. And in this case... The most helpful passage we have is in, some would call it the Apocrypha, I I always call it Deuterocanonical. The Deuterocanonical book of Sirach is so similar to this passage that we really cannot ignore it when we're interpreting this passage. So as an ancient Jewish writing, this passage had to have been incredibly well known I think if I were to ask most of you, like, oh, hey, you remember that passage in Sirach 35? And everyone would probably say no. Um, But at that time, the book of Sirach was a well-known writing, um, and certainly to this group of Pharisees whom Jesus is speaking to. They knew exactly what he was talking about. They didn't have to rack their their brains. Um, And we are far less familiar So I'm just going to read this excerpt from Sirach 35. Do not offer him a bribe, for he will not accept it. And do not rely on a dishonest sacrifice, for the Lord is the judge, and with him there is no partiality. He will not show partiality to the poor, but he will listen to the prayer of the one who is wronged. He will not ignore the supplication of the orphan, or the widow, when she pours out her complaint. Do not the tears of the widow run down her cheek as she cries out against the one who caused them to fall? The one whose service is pleasing to the Lord will be accepted, and his prayer will reach the clouds. The prayer of the humble pierces the clouds, and it will not rest until it reaches its goal. It will not desist until the Most High responds and does justice for the righteous and executes judgment. Indeed, the Lord will not delay. And then here we'll skip ahead a little bit, and it ends with this, until he judges the cases of his people and makes them rejoice in his mercy. So we see we cannot separate this parable from this this earlier theme found in Sirach of justice and the coming of the kingdom. And then we have to ask then, what is it we're asked to be praying for? Because we see that our prayers are tied to this overarching judgment and justice theme, and we're asked to persist in that prayer. So we, we ask the question then, does that mean... God will not bring about justice unless we pray for it and pray for it persistently. That's not quite right. And this is something that I see reflected on that that journey that we began with. What is the purpose of telling us to pray like this? 
There's no doubt that we're asked to be praying over and over. And then the, par- the evidence here lies again in the fact that this parable emphasizes the end times. So this passage immediately before this warns that there's going to be no time to get ready when Christ comes again. And it uses imagery like going into a house really quickly and that simple pit stops are not going to give us enough time once Christ comes. So we're not going to have time to get our hearts ready when Christ is already here. We need the readying to take place ahead of time. So that's our first clue as to what this prayer is or what our role in prayer is. We need to get our hearts ready to echo God's own heart. If God is a God who seeks justice, our hearts must align with his and also seek justice. If God is a God who has compassion on the hurting, then our hearts must align with his already. We can't wait until the kingdom already comes and then say, oh, hang on, let me try and understand what you're saying. Instead, we need to be already in alignment with him. So, our role in prayer, first of all, is to be aligned with him. First, we need to pray and come to him and ask what it is that he wants in this situation. So, like I said, Luke was writing at a time when there was already a lot of persecution against Christians. And Jesus is speaking in a time when this widow that they're talking about would surely have lived a life that led to misery. And he cares about those things, and people around him care about those things. And so they see the hurting, and they look at Jesus, and they say, why are you just standing there? When is the kingdom going to come? They're hurting widows. They're persecuted Christians. What is going on? And his response is, pray. Pray and be ready is the first thought. Be ready so that you see this injustice and you hate it as much as God does. That's step number one. So from the, from the beginning intro to this passage, we see that prayer helps us to be ready. When we pray over and over, we become more like God When we seek him over and over, we start to understand the things that he wants for us and for this world. Yes, let's persist in prayer, but not just the surfacey prayer that makes God into a genie that grants us anything, right? It's not just persisting in prayers that say, God, I want more money, or God, give me more. Instead, it's persisting in prayer that's going to bring us deeper and closer to God. That's going to align our hearts with his. It's like having a conversation with a friend. When you have a real true conversation with a friend, you understand them more, and maybe you even become a little more like them. We need to have that kind of conversation with God persistently. And then we go to the end of the passage, those last two verses, the last two verses that give us a little trouble. And we say, okay, so if the beginning was about being ready, the end is about something a little bit different. The end says, 
Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? These last two verses lead us to realize that it's not just about persisting to get ourselves ready, but it's also about giving us hope. That's why a lot of scholars think that Luke wrote those last two verses, because it shifts so suddenly to a message of hope that the kingdom is coming. Don't worry, it's going to come. The judgment will come. The, the justice you're asking for will come. So yes, prayer helps us get ready, but prayer also gives us hope. And again, it's not that prayer that says, dear God, give me stuff. But it's the prayer that says, dear God, do you see this injustice? And when we align ourselves with him more and more, we see that, yes, he does see that injustice, and he cares. And this passage tells us the more we pray persistently, the more we realize that the kingdom is coming. There is going to be relief, and it's going to be okay. Jesus tells us to pray persistently, because he wants us to give a, give he wants us to have the hope that he knows is coming it took years for god to get me where i am in my faith and i see that progression i see that i went from someone who didn't pray who thought maybe god didn't want me at all to someone who knew God deeper and deeper. And that came through progressing in my prayer life, and that came through, progress- through reading scriptures. And I don't think I could have articulated that at the time, but that's exactly what happened. And, and so I see that even in the scripture, even before I really understood what it meant, that is exactly where I was going. God was bringing me deeper, and through that that deeper relationship with him and persisting in prayer and persisting in my faith, even though I had been so discouraged by this, this passage in the very beginning, maybe discouraged enough that I would want to quit. By persisting in prayer and faith, God actually brought me much, much deeper. And God actually brought me to such an understanding of him that I know his character would never allow for that, for for being bothered by people now. And going deeper with him and persisting in prayer has also brought me immeasurable hope that one day the kingdom will come and, and that hope and that, um, that anticipation I have for the coming of the kingdom is so great because it does get me through so many things in my life And it helps me to understand that this injustice we face in our world today will one day be wiped away. Now, I'm going to end this. um, I'm going to end this with Aladdin. (laughs) Because at the beginning, we asked you to think of three wishes. And they were just three any wishes. But we know that this passage is not about persisting and just asking God for random, superficial stuff. We know that this passage is about persisting 
in the desires that God has for the world. That includes growing in faith and deeper in relation with him. So as we get ready to take offering, maybe while the offering music is playing, this is what you can be reflecting on. If you had three wishes specifically for justice in this world, what would those be? Maybe you can grab a pen or a pencil and write them down. If you had three wishes specifically for justice in this world, what would those be? But don't end it there. As we go from this place, our challenge is to take those three wishes and make them into genuine, deep conversation with God. So our challenge, especially this week, is to look back at the things we wrote down and don't just pray, God, make them happen, but instead allow yourself to go into a deep, persistent conversation. Even if it's just for this week to try it out, go into a deep, persistent conversation about those three justice issues that you would like to see happen and see how God deepens your relationship and your faith in that.